Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host today. Uh, we're delighted and honored to have Floyd Abrams with us uh, today to discuss his new book, The Soul of the First Amendment. Uh, and it's especially fitting that uh, we discuss this book today, May 1st, Law Day in America, because one of the book's central themes is how America, in America, speech and press freedoms are so much better protected than they are in the rest of the world, including in the democratic world. Um, yet that was not always so. We uh, often forget uh, that uh, these protections are relatively recent in our history. Uh, Mr. Abrams is senior counsel at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell. Uh, his uh, litigation practice is extensive. Uh, he has uh, national trial and appellate practice experience on high visibility matters, often involving the First Amendment, securities litigation, intellectual property, public policy, um, securities uh, lit litigation, intellectual property, and so forth. He, um, the range of issues, in fact, is really uh, unbelievable. Uh, everything from ERISA cases to copyright, the Miranda rule, insurance cases, and so much more. Um, he's perhaps best known, of course, for his defense of uh, the New York Times in the famous Pentagon Papers litigation of the early 1970s. But before you draw too many uh, conclusions from that, you'll do well to read the last section in this new book, uh, where he wrestles in a very subtle way with the uh, problems that arise uh, with uh, a free press and national security. I commend that to you in particular. Uh, one final note before I turn things over to uh, Mr. Abrams. Um, as an initial friends of free speech, uh, on the left deserted that effort, especially in the area of campaign finance, he remained true to the First Amendment's core principles. As I said, we're delighted and honored to have Mr. Abrams with us. Please welcome Floyd Abrams. Thank you, Roger, and it's good to see all of you here. Um, I used to have on my wall at, uh, in my office a, a now aging New Yorker cartoon uh, of the members of the Supreme Court sitting around a table, and one of them whispers to the other, do you ever have a day when everything seems unconstitutional? Uh, I try so hard not to sound uh, that way. Uh, and uh, with the uh, direction of the Supreme Court, a direction I find very uh, cheering uh, with respect to the First Amendment, uh, I, I don't really have to. Well, one of the good things about writing a book is that you know, it does sort of throw you into other worlds. Uh, uh, and I spent a good deal of time in the sort of post-ratification of the U.S. Constitution world and, and researching the book and uh, thinking about it. Uh, I was struck. I must have known it at some level. But I was struck by sort of relearning from the start 
that uh, when the framers met in Philadelphia, uh, they not only did not uh, adopt a Bill of Rights, uh, but they voted 10 to nothing against having a Bill of Rights, 10 states to nothing. Um, it was towards the end of their deliberations, and some authors have pointed out they were tired and it was hot. Uh, but the fact is, uh, it was a unanimous vote not to do so. Um, and the arguments there, which were very brief there, but then got very heated in the ratification process as state by state were making uh, uh, determinations of whether to ratify, the issue kept recurring. Uh, and, and it was not that anybody thought it would be a wonderful thing to suppress freedom of religion or freedom of speech, freedom of the press or assembly. It was, on one level at least, a question of whether it was necessary, useful, appropriate to have a Bill of Rights uh, at all, uh, given that the whole purpose of the meeting in Philadelphia and the, uh, the abandonment of the Articles of Confederation and the adoption of the Constitution was to put together a, a country for the first time. Uh, we had had 13 states victorious against England and the Revolutionary War, uh, but nonetheless, uh, with no power to tax, no power to have an army, no power to act as countries act. Um, and so the Constitutional Convention, uh, one could say, was a sort of runaway convention, what people fear about having a Constitutional Convention today. Uh, that they didn't amend the Articles of Confederation, they rewrote and created a constitution. And it was a constitution of enumerated powers. Uh, and so from the start, the argument about whether to have a Bill of Rights or not was one about necessity, uh, even, even utility. And Alexander Hamilton, uh, writing in The Federalist, uh, made the classic argument against it. Why, he wrote, should the Constitution declare that things should not be done where there is no power to do? This is a quotation. Why should it be said that the liberty of the press should not be restrained in which no power is given, by which restrictions may be imposed? And he made policy arguments. He made lawyer arguments serious lawyer arguments. Uh, once we start down this road, how long a list are we going to have? If we start listing uh, the things Congress cannot do, are we not uh, asking for a situation where anything we don't put on the list will be deemed something Congress can do? Uh, some, an argument that ultimately resulted in the Ninth Amendment uh, of the Constitution. Um, and uh, opponents uh, of a Bill of Rights uh, sort of mocked uh, the idea. Uh, uh, Roger Sherman wrote, no Bill of Rights has ever yet bound the supreme power longer than the honeymoon of a newly married couple. 
John Dickens and said, do, do we really want to be reminded that the sun enlightens, warms, invigorates, and cheers, and how horrid it would be to have its blessed beams intercepted by our being thrust into mines or dungeons? Uh, Noah Webster, in a line I like the best maybe, said, if we're adding a list of inalienable rights, why not include one that says, everybody in good weather shall hunt on his own land, catch fish in rivers that are public property, and Congress shall never restrain any inhabitant of America from eating and drinking at seasonable times or, provide or prevent his lying on his left side on a long winter's night. Uh, and some people opposed it on very substantive grounds. James Madison, who moved from side to side on the issue of whether a Bill of Rights was a good idea, said that the Bill of Rights were generally parchment barriers, which, all, which, quote, will never be regarded when opposed to the decided sense of the public. It was Jefferson, Jefferson in Paris, Jefferson so mocked now in the play, Hamilton arriving home, if you remember, and saying after the Revolutionary War, did I miss anything? Uh, uh, it was Jefferson uh, who got it. It was Jefferson who wrote, it astonishes me that our countrymen should be contented to live under a system which leaves to their governors the power of taking from them trial by jury in civil cases, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and the like. And a line that, that I think the beginning of has gotten significant uh, publicity, <coughs> at least in academic journals, but the end, not enough. He said that uh, a Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, general or particular, and what no just government should refuse or rest on inference. The beginning of that line is well known. The, the end is not so much. And that's what the argument was really about. Uh, were they prepared to proceed down a road of inferring, basically, that free speech, free press, freedom of religion could not be taken from the people of the newly uh, or a reorganized government newly with enormous new power for the federal government, would, would they be content to just rest that on the inference that that would not happen because it was a government of enumerated powers and it never said free speech could be uh, stricken? Um, and so, in part for strategic reasons, there were people in a lot of states that uh, were against the Constitution uh, for other reasons than the absence of a Bill of Rights. And Madison uh, sagely uh, observed that uh, he wanted to be in front of the line. He, he thought supporters of the Constitution ought, ought to be seemingly, at least, in favor uh, of, a, of a Bill of Rights uh, rather than have it foisted on them uh, and used as a basis for rejecting the Constitution uh, at the ratification level. And so we wound up with the Bill of Rights. Uh, 
and uh, by happenstance wound up with the First Amendment being the First Amendment. It had been the Fourth Amendment as initially drafted, but don't, don't tell anyone like that because lawyers like me like to talk about the firstness uh, of the First Amendment when we argue in court. It is the First Amendment, and it has been treated as the First Amendment from the time uh, it was adopted. Um, and so uh, it seemed to me as I went through all this that, that there were three general uh, conclusions to draw from it. First, it really worked out to be important that we wrote it down rather than inferred it from the simple fact of the enumerated powers uh, argument. Uh, second, that it's law, not poetry, not aspirational, not hoped for, but supreme, binding, enforceable by judges uh, law. Uh, Madison wrote optimistically, courts of justice would serve as impenetrable barriers to violation uh, of the Bill of Rights, which again, he had initially uh, not supported. Uh, and, and the notion that, that, that it is law is one of the things that really distinguishes the US from so many foreign countries, which have language purporting to assert protection, or at least uh, the principle that, that freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, et cetera, should be without the power uh, of, of government. And the third is that it's phrased negatively. Uh, when it was introduced by Madison uh, uh, in, in the House of Representatives, uh, it was couched not uh, negatively, but, but uh, positively. Madison phrased it this way, the people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments. And that was transformed in the legislative process to the familiar uh, and indelibly imprinted, Congress shall make no law. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press uh, in that part of the 45 words uh, of, the, uh, of the First Amendment. And it, it seems to me that, that the, the ultimate choice of that language, of course, Congress came to mean not just Congress, but the executive branch, and with the 14th Amendment, not just the federal government, but the states, but making it a ban on the government rather than anything which could simply be viewed as aspirational, which could simply be viewed as a, a statement of policy, uh, uh, which again has been the case uh, in, many, in many, many countries uh, around the world. So what my book is about, for the most part, is a comparison, as Roger said, of, of, of the, the degree to which American First Amendment law has provided vastly more protection <coughs> for freedom of speech and press in particular than is true elsewhere. Uh, and the consequence of that, of course, 
that the competing values, and there are competing values to free speech and free press, uh, are less protected here as a result. We have libel law in America, but we have libel law which is limited by the First Amendment. So when the president says, as he has, that he wants to loosen the libel laws to make it easier, he said, for people like himself to bring uh, lawsuits when things that are said about them that are not true, uh, what he's running up against is not just the proposition that there is no federal libel law, there's nothing for Congress to do. There's no, nothing for them to amend. We have 50 states that have separate libel laws. But that it's the, the First Amendment has been interpreted since the great case of New York Times against Sullivan in 1964 as providing the, the very protection that, that really prevents or has prevented him uh, in the past and others, uh, not, not just not just the president. Uh, uh, you know, so now our libel law exists. We have, every state has libel law, but every state's libel law is constrained by the First Amendment so that when you write about uh, uh, someone who is a, a public official or a public figure and that person sues, not only do you have to prove that what was said was false, not only do you have to prove that it was defamatory, really holds the person up to obloquy, yeah. as we say, um, but that you knew it was false or suspected it was false. And that added element from New York Times against Sullivan is one of the great protections of freedom of the press uh, in, in the history uh, uh, of this country. And I can't help but think that it made it a lot easier to get there by phrasing negatively the language of the First Amendment as barring Congress, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press, rather than the alternative that people shall not be deprived of freedom of speech or of the press. There's another uh, uh, interesting consequence uh, of that uh, drafting decision. Uh, if the First Amendment had not been couched in terms of uh, the government can't do this, the government can't do that, uh, we certainly would have had a lot of litigation about the issue of whether Facebook, whether Google, whether, whether the wide range of other situations uh, in, in which uh, voices are uh, heard, things are printed and the like, uh, would be subject to any sort of uh, legal protection uh, at all. And alternatively, uh, as, as in some countries to some extent, with no distinction between the ban on the government stepping in and the ban on non-governmental entities. One sees this on college campuses now all the time. All public universities are bound by the First Amendment. So when you read about events at Berkeley, you are reading about 
events where the, the First Amendment is by definition center stage. But if it were Princeton or Yale or GW, uh, First Amendment doesn't come into play at all, except that virtually all the great universities of our countries have chosen to say, we, we will act as if the First Amendment bound uh, our behavior. But as a legal matter, if they had not said it, if they had chosen not to, they would be perfectly free uh, to invite Ann Coulter or not, or invite only people who are liberal or conservative, or uh, uh, Liberty University, uh, is and ought to be perfectly free to invite only people who share their religious point of view. Um, I mean, that's part of freedom too. But the First Amendment, once it comes into play, is what limits universities that are public universities from behaving in a way which uh, involves them making content decisions about what sort of speakers they will uh, agree to have uh, appear uh, uh, on campus. So what I've tried to uh, uh, outline in the book with a variety of examples is the wide range of situations in which there is far more protection for free speech and free expression in this country than elsewhere. Uh, and I mean countries that care about free expression but simply do not enforce it as we do. <clears throat> Two examples, Canada had a situation where in Saskatchewan, uh, 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 high schools were about to teach about homosexuality. A religious fanatic, I think one would say, uh, uh, went door to door and put in over a thousand mailboxes a flyer he had written, basically saying uh, they're, they're gonna advocate buggery, they're gonna advocate this, and in, in the crudest possible terms, uh, denounced uh, homosexuality. That's a crime in Canada. It's hate speech is illegal in Canada. Hate speech is illegal throughout Western Europe in democratic countries. Uh, we protect it, and we protect it to the point that when the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which is a family which styles itself as a church and goes from church to church around the country when American veterans uh, who have been uh, killed in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan are being mourned with signs as close to the church as the police will allow, denouncing the dead soldiers and saying that this is God's justified punishment for America being too soft on gays, uh, all used in, in much coarser and more brutal uh, language. So what Canada says is illegal speech is not only protected here, but Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, said is especially protected, that the speech was about matters of public importance and public interest, homosexuals in the military, how to treat homosexuals in general, all those matters the Chief Justice said 
are matters which uh, are matters of extreme public interest and controversy, and as to which there can be no censorship. Uh, it's just one of many examples uh, in which we give significantly uh, more protection than is the norm uh, throughout uh, Western Europe. One example I cite is some things that then-candidate Trump said about Muslims and Mexicans, uh, which could well have been deemed criminal uh, throughout Western Europe. And there are cases in England and Belgium uh, 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 described in my book uh, in which people with uh, signs uh, saying, stop the Islamification, or go home, or Britain for the Brits. Those sorts of signs were used as evidence and proof of uh, a sort of hate speech which is actionable throughout Western Europe and not here. A final example. Uh, throughout Western Europe now, not in Canada, but throughout Europe now, there is now a, quote, right to be forgotten, unquote. Uh, a, a right which is basically as follows. When information has been published in newspapers or been on television or radio some years ago, not clear how many it has to be, but usually it's been over 10 years or so, and it is no longer considered relevant, and it is defamatory, of a person mentioned, uh, the, the rule now in Europe is that Google may not carry it if individuals object. So if people say to Google, uh, I'm, I'm listed here, I'm, I'm in a newspaper article, it's, it's 20 years old. Either I did something wrong, e even convictions. I was convicted of this, or even more, uh, uh, I, I, had, I was brought into a newsworthy situation, uh, which uh, I, I don't like people to think about or talk about. And I didn't do anything wrong. And it can't be relevant to anything now. Google can be required, and is required, to delete it on the grounds that it is no longer, quote, relevant. I don't have the slightest doubt. Uh, that, that that rule of law, which is quite new, I mean, I'm talking five or six years, uh, uh, would be unconstitutional here and unanimously held to be unconstitutional here. We would say it's a destruction of history. We would say it's true. Accurate information. Uh, we don't ban it. Uh, um, and our, our friends in Europe say quite the opposite. So Google has already deleted over half a million uh, uh, references to individuals uh, at their request, sometimes as a result of court order, uh, sometimes because Google knows that it has to do it. So that, that, that in good part is what uh, uh, the book is about. That's what I've been thinking of. Uh, and uh, I very much appreciate the chance to appear here today. Uh, and to have uh, Roger introduce me. Thank you all.
Well, thank you, Floyd. That was, of course, just the barest summary of this book. It is a wonderful book. I encourage you to pick up a copy. It's a page turner. It is very well written, an easy read. It's not full of legal uh, technicalities, and, and yet it is extraordinarily instructive. Um, the, uh, the book is available outside, by the way, and uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, Floyd would be glad to sign it for you at, at lunch, so uh, please pick up a copy. Uh, it's also, for those of you who are seeing us online, it's available, as we used to say, in better bookstores, and uh, it'll be available, of course, and probably already is at Amazon. Now we're going to hear from another uh, First Amendment uh, expert, uh, Ron Collins, uh, who is uh, the Harold uh, Scheffelman Distinguished Scholar at the University of Washington School of Law. He served as a Supreme Court Fellow to Chief Justice Warren Berger, and before that as a law clerk to Oregon Supreme Court Justice Hans Lindy. Uh, he's the author of 10 books, including Nuanced Absolutism, Floyd Ab Abrams and the First Amendment, in 2013. His articles have appeared in numerous scholarly journals, including the Harvard and Stanford Law Reviews, the Supreme Court uh, Review, and others. Uh, he is the editorial board on the editorial board of uh, SCOTUS Blog and writes a weekly uh, blog entitled First Amendment News, which appears on Concurring Opinions website. His next two books, uh, both with David uh, Scover, are The Judge, 26 Machiavellian Lessons from Oxford University Press and Robotica, Free Speech and Artificial Intelligence from Cambridge University Press. We do have presses in this country, Ron, you know, uh, but maybe you felt that Yale wouldn't publish it, but I uh, allude to another issue in that case. Um, Ron is also the, uh, one of the co-founders of the First Amendment Salon, which works in cooperation with the Floyd Abrams Institute, for Freedom of Expression, which I believe, is that located at Yale? Yes, okay. Please welcome Ron Collins. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's nice to know that uh, liberals like Floyd and myself can come in the front door and engage uh, in exercising our First Amendment rights, and I very much appreciate that opportunity. Um, I must say, as someone who has read all of this book, uh, Floyd replete with all sorts of notes at the back, um, it is, uh, it's, it's like you're reading um, meditation and he invites you into the parlor of his mind. It's that sort of book. If you're looking for something turgid, footnoted, uh, scholastic, uh, this is not the book. But if you're a lawyer, a scholar, a brewer, or just somebody interested in liberty, then there's something in this book for you, and I, I commend it to you. Um, I'd like to make six points that today um, about the book. Uh, they might be categorized as observations, as comments, or even as questions. So let's start at the beginning, uh, the title of the book, The Soul of the First Amendment. I was taken by the word soul, uh, and I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, one of those or in dictionaries, forgive me. Uh, and it def defines soul as the spiritual side of nature or the seed of emotions or sentiments, the emotional part of human nature. In other words, what is fundamental to the idea of soul is belief, right? You have to believe in it. 
And um, now here in the context of this book, that belief transcends um, law, including doctrinal law. This is not to say that it thinks law is unimportant because it thinks it's very important, but it is not cabined there. There is something important about the spirit of the First Amendment, its ethos, if you will, um, that um, the idea of belief um, gets us to think about. And as I was thinking about uh, that word belief and um, the title, uh, The Soul of the First Amendment Floyd, I thought of two uh, authors. One is Hugo Black, who had a book published in 1968 called A Constitutional Faith, in which he placed great faith in the promise of the First Amendment. Um, not surprisingly, this book opens with an epigraph quote from Yes, Hugo Black, and I think it's worth reading. This is Justice Hugo Black, the epigraph quote to this book. The very reason for the First Amendment is to make people, the people of the country free to think, speak, write, and worship as they wish, not as the government commands. I think that represents uh, very much the belief system that uh, operated in Hugo Black's mind. The other person that came to mind was a very different person um, who probably didn't have much in common with Hugo Black, and that's Learned Hand. And in his 1952 book entitled The Spirit of Liberty, I think he makes a point that is very much a part of the ethos of this book, and that is, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can save it. No constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. And I think it's that ethos that um, Hugo Black flagged and that learned hand emphasized is very much a part of this book, thus the name, The Soul to the First Amendment. The second thing that came to mind is, if you will, the meaning or the central meaning of the First Amendment. Many people, many scholars have written about this, uh, people as diverse as Alexander Micklejohn, Harry Calvin, Robert Bork, Robert Post, Justice Stephen Breyer, if you will. And they've all talked about various values that they think are central to the First Amendment. In a nuanced but nevertheless decisive way, Mr. Abrams offers the following view as to what he thinks is central. And I'm quoting him here. The imposition of strict limits on government authority over religion, speech, and press was the central purpose of the First Amendment. It is what the First Amendment is about. He also adds, at its core, it is not about pro promoting collective speech, but of avoiding the imposition of just such speech by the government. And finally, he stresses that the ultimate First Amendment value is the avoidance of government censorship without regard, I mentioned this, without regard to the worth of the speech itself. I think in that regard, what Floyd sees as central is very different uh, from a lot of views um, expressed in the academy and outside of it. Which brings me to the next point, one which uh, Ilya will develop a little further, but I just want to highlight a few things, and that's the new foes of the First Amendment. 
um, in a variety of areas, including campus speech, commercial speech, and campaign finance, the new critics of the kind of robust freedom uh, that Floyd um, defends are, by and large, liberals. In this regard, Justice Stephen Breyer has written, and I quote, the First Amendment advances not only the individual's right to engage in political speech, but also the public's interest in preserving democratic order in which collective speech matters. Contrast collective speech to the understanding, the central purpose of the First Amendment as Floyd has flagged it for us. In this regard, uh, Floyd says, its core teaching is that its values are best served by limiting the power of government over speech, not augmenting it. He also says in response to Justice Breyer, the purpose of the First Amendment is the opposite. What's, what Breyer says is the opposite of what the First Amendment is about. Now, Justice Breyer's view, Floyd, as you know, has many defenders in the academy. And first and foremost of those academies is a place called Yale Law School. Uh, as I counted them, no fewer than six distinguished scholars at Yale Law School, including the present dean and the forthcoming dean, are all critics in one way or another of the views espoused by their distinguished alumnus. Uh, and yet, uh, in that regard, the Floyd Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression, anchored as it is at Yale Law School, is, uh, if you will, a free speech sanctuary for those who hold politically incorrect views about the brand of liberty you hope to invigorate at your institute. And Floyd, I wish you well and much luck in that endeavor. Uh, fourth, Floyd talks a lot about um, First Amendment exceptionalism and compares the United States to other countries. And I think it's important to note because it goes to how we understand what freedom of speech is. But according to the 2017 World Press Freedom Index, prepared by Reporters Without Borders, the United States ranks 43rd, if you can believe that, 43rd in protection of free speech behind Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Estonia, the Czech Republic, Chile, um, this tells you something about how different our notions of freedom of speech are if we rank 43rd. Um, next, my next uh, penultimate point is about WikiLeaks and the Trump administration. Uh, despite um, uh, Floyd's near absolute uh, protection for the First Amendment, uh, he does uh, and has, is in a number of places, quite critical of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Uh, and I think with some warrant that there are indeed matters of national security that go uh, to the essence of what it means to defend this country. And in that regard, um, Floyd is not shy and nor is he reckless uh, when it comes to talking about the First Amendment. Uh, that said, I think it is a fair statement to say that as the Attorney General has indicated that they're going to go after leakers, uh, undoubtedly uh, if they can get Julian Assange and others, they will. I think the important question is, is what happens when that information from those leakers who are, if you will, 
unpopular persona goes to a newspaper, and thereafter the newspaper or the media outlet is published, is, is um, uh, prosecuted. Finally, this book is a book about rights and, believe it or not, responsibilities. It opens with a declaration, a bold declaration of rights from Hugo Black, and yet it closes with a question. It closes with a question about press responsibility, about the responsibility of the American press, all right, uh, not to publish everything that comes their way, all right? Uh, and in this regard, he takes issue with some prominent members of the press who have a view that whatever comes their way, uh, rather how reckless or rather how dangerous to our national security uh, is their uh, duty, their blind duty, if you will, to publish. Uh, in that regard, uh, um, Mr. Abrams asks us, those of us who are strong defenders of the First Amendment, and asks the press uh, to think anew uh, about how to judge such matters. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. And on that uh, penultimate and final point, uh, he did indeed distinguish um, his uh, comments on um, Snowden, Assange, and the like, and the relatively uh, more responsible um, actions of some of the leading newspapers of the day and drawing the distinctions that need to be drawn in that area. We're now going to hear uh, at last from um, Ilya Shapiro, who is a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato, my colleague, and the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, um, Ilya was special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues and practiced at uh, Patton, uh, Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Uh, he is the uh, co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Question Mark, Hobby Lobby, The Affordable Care Act, and The Constitution, which was published in 2014. Uh, he's contributed to a variety of academic and popular uh, publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the LA Times, USA T uh, Today, Weekly Standard, New York Times Online, National <coughs> Review Online, and elsewhere. He's also a frequent uh, commentator on CNN, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, Univision, and Telemundo, where he uh, speaks in Spanish, and he also lectures in Brazil in Portuguese uh, among his other languages. Um, <clears throat> you're going to do it in English? Good, good. I think that'll probably work here. Um, he has filed uh, more than 200 Friends of the Court briefs um, at the Supreme Court for Cato, including one, the green bag selected for its exemplary legal writing collection. Uh, it is uh, the um, spoof that, um, or I, spoof would maybe be uh, the way to describe it, but it is a colorful brief that you should really read. Um, with that, uh, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. I, I must say that of all the uh, introductions I've ever gotten, that is definitively the most recent. Um, this is an important topic, and I'm, I'm honored to be uh, addressing you on it. Uh, I'm honored to be sharing a stage with the dean of the First Amendment Bar, uh, Floyd Abrams, 
who over his uh, long and distinguished career has certainly taken the slings and arrows from all sorts of ideological sides and, and, and partisan perspectives, uh, but his lodestar uh, is the commitment to freedom of speech in all its guises, and he is to be commended for that, and uh, you have to appreciate that it's, it's rare uh, because people bend based on their uh, uh, political or, or other parochial uh, concerns, but uh, Floyd has been steadfast. Uh, and indeed, this book could not be uh, more timely. Uh, it seems like the First Amendment, uh, unfortunately, really, uh, is, is often timely. Uh, we saw just last week a big uh, Twitter debate uh, launched by Howard Dean, the former Vermont governor and uh, presidential candidate, who uh, talked about uh, hate speech not being protected by the Constitution, when repeated legal scholars of various stripes, uh, real ones, not just Twitter so-called legal scholars, pointed out to him that that was uh, demonstrably and, and obviously false, he uh, doubled down, uh, citing uh, a case called Chaplinsky, which, uh, well, it's debatable what its uh, uh, lasting effect uh, now is, uh, but it stands for the fighting words doctrine. That is, if you in person start insulting someone to the point where they just get their dander up and, and have to start a fight, uh, anyway, it's, it's not a, a general kind of hate speech uh, exception uh, to the First Amendment. And of course, uh, Ron mentioned Berkeley and these things that happen uh, in, in various campuses. Uh, there was another uh, uh, meme going around, again, on Twitter or Facebook or what have you, where you know, I consume a lot of my uh, news. And uh, it showed Berkeley from 1968, you know, the height of uh, you know, what the name Berkeley stands for in, in kind of the, the public imagination, at least uh, you know, previous generations. Uh, and it showed a, a big sign talking, you know, a demonstration for the freedom of speech. You know, that was, a, that was, that was what they were fighting for. Uh, and then it showed a sign from more recently where someone was uh, burning or tearing up a sign about free speech. Because, of course, free speech is uh, an indication of, of privilege, and you have to check your privilege. And free speech leads to hate speech, which is bad and, and so forth. Uh, we live in interesting times indeed. It, it reminded me, uh, you know, all of this as I'm reading the book and thinking about this subject in a very meditative way, as Ron said. This is not a legal treatise. This is kind of a, a Floyd distilling the soul of the First Amendment based on his career. But it led me to uh, 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 recall a personal experience I had in this regard uh, testifying before the Senate in uh, regarding Citizens United and uh, uh, reforms to constitutional amendments to limit the First Amendment in certain contexts, what have you. Uh, on my, I'll spare you the repartee from various senators who, you know, uh, called me various things, uh, what have you. Uh, but on the way out, what's what, what's even more memorable than than the official portion was someone in the in the audience, and there were all these activists that were bussed in. Uh, someone in the audience uh, yelled at me that I was a fascist, uh, which is just bizarre. And I, and I turned around. Um, and I said, uh, ma'am, uh, you might want to get a dictionary, whether Oxford or, or uh, Merriam-Webster or whatever your preference, and, uh, uh, and look up fascist and then look up libertarian. You'll see that they're diametrically opposed. But, but such is the world we live in that if you uh, advocate for less government involvement uh, in a given area, less restrictions, all of a sudden you are a fascist, which of course means government control of repression, censorship, and and all the rest. It, it's, it's really 
uh, bizarre. Uh, and that's kind of the, uh, the culmination or kind of the ongoing uh, rise uh, of this uh, idea that uh, the court's protection, the judiciary's protection of the First Amendment is some sort of conspiracy first to benefit uh, uh, corporate patrons. Uh, there was this whole narrative uh, in uh, uh, the first decade of the 2000s after, after Bush v. Gore uh, and continuing to this day still, but uh, uh, talking about how the, 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 the Supreme Court is beholden to business interests, the most pro-business court ever, and that uh, made its way into the First Amendment discussion by talking about how corporations hijack the First Amendment to protect commercial speech in cases such as IMS Health, where uh, uh, a medical uh, a company bought uh, the prescription data files from various physicians, not any personal uh, identifying information or anything that raises privacy concerns, but simply uh, what kind of medicines were prescribed by which doctors and uh, information like, like this. Uh, and various states, mostly in the Northeast, started uh, passing laws against this practice, which is called uh, detailing. Uh, and this went up all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court struck down uh, these laws as a restriction uh, on the collection and dissemination of information, a clear First Amendment violation. Uh, but of course, this is uh, the, the corporate takeover uh, of the First Amendment. As Fred Schauer of the University of Virginia uh, uh, wrote, the co uh, First Amendment, uh, he called it First Amendment opportunism. Uh, free speech is a cherished American ideal. Companies are exploiting that esteem to try to accomplish goals that are not so clearly uh, related to speech. And then Tim Wu, writing a professor in Columbia, writing in the New Republic, says that the co-opting of the First Amendment has happened slowly, but not all by accident. First, it was helped along by questionable court decisions. Today, it's being accelerated by a strange alliance between two groups, a new generation of conservative judges who have thankfully, that's my editorial comment, repudiated the judicial restraint their forebears prized, and uh, legendary liberal lawyers like Floyd Abrams and Lawrence Tribe, who after building their reputations as defenders of free speech, are using their talents to deploy it as a tool of corporate deregulation. I'm sure you've been called worse, Floyd. Um, and that led to, a, a few years ago, um, there was a, a Supreme Court term the 2013-2014 term that had just a slew, a plethora of cases involving the First Amendment in various ways. And they were all brought by various libertarian and conservative uh, public interest groups, which led David Savage, the LA Times uh, Supreme Court reporter, to write a whole article on how, um, uh, quote, these days the Constitution's protections for free speech and religious liberty has become the weapon of choice uh, for conservatives. Uh, this weaponized First Amendment that uh, other commentators, um, uh, uh, being less uh, balanced than, than David Savage, talk about the threats to uh, the rights of uh, unions and uh, uh, abortion clinics and uh, individuals, consumers against corporations, all of these sorts of things. And this is a, uh, the conservative project being run through the First Amendment. Uh, as I pointed out, David quoted me uh, uh, graciously in this article, that uh, the reason to the extent that this is, a, this is a trend now or a tendency that conservatives and libertarians rather than liberals or progressives own the First Amendment, it's because progressives tend to see the government as a force for good. And so if you're fighting against government actions and restrictions, uh, that uh, you know that you can see why progressives might not like that, and indeed it's it's striking. Uh, it used to be uh, during those Berkeley free, free speech days that the First Amendment was identified with hippies, right, and other 
crazy people, weirdos, right, who wanted to burn draft cards and burn flags and whatever else, you know, wear jackets into the courtroom that, that said, fuck the draft, all these famous cases, right? Uh, and then it became strippers, right, is that expressive activity that's protected by the First Amendment. And all to the, you know, that, that, those didn't go away. We still got cases at the Supreme Court about violent video games and uh, animal crush videos, which are just the weirdest and saddest thing around. But, you know, so we still do have those cases, but the most controversial front page news that the First Amendment makes isn't so much about that. It's about these areas that, as Ron uh, uh, mentioned, uh, have become identified with the, the so-called uh, right-wing assault uh, on the First Amendment, Con uh, commercial speech, political speech, uh, and campus speech. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, that's uh, an unusual uh, tendency, not least, again, because um, the First Amendment uh, doesn't know uh, an ideological uh, uh, direction. Uh, it's meant to protect uh, right-wingers, left-wingers alike. Indeed, we were just talking uh, in the green room that uh, one of the worst uh, abuses of the freedom of speech uh, or violations of it happened under the Espionage Act under Woodrow Wilson, uh, nearly 100 years ago. In fact, the Espionage Act is celebrating its 100th anniversary uh, next month. But Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party candidate for president, uh, during an anti-war, because of his anti-war agitation, uh, was uh, imprisoned. Uh, and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, the big progressive icon, upheld uh, that conviction, even as H.L. Mencken, uh, the curmudgeon, uh, opposed it. Um, as Damon Root, uh, a friend of Cato and a, and a legal reporter for the Reason magazine, put it, uh, First Amendment cases often fail to conform to a binary left-right divide, and that's because both sides of the political spectrum are willing to accept the use of government power to silence certain voices at certain times. Although now, the sort of free market conservatives, or the libertarians, uh, are in the ascent with regard to the First Amendment, rather than kind of the traditional moralistic conservatives who would want to uh, have speech and expression restrictions uh, on the basis of, of morality or, or tradition or decency or, or obscenity or, or what have you. And so the, uh, the, the main folks um, who are uh, supporting the government's power to regulate and restrict speech uh, come from uh, the egalitarian wing, come from the progressives, uh, who, who privilege uh, liberty in terms of equality rather than liberty in terms of uh, expression and letting a thousand flowers bloom, um, whether it's in, in Breyer-esque terms of collective speech or whether it's equalizing voices or uh, balancing, leveling the, uh, the playing field. It's a, it's a very different conception. Um, I still don't understand why the left is so up in arms about Citizens United, uh, for example. Why don't they get it? It can't be a, uh, a consequentialist sort of argument because it's not that uh, Democratic candidates have a hard time raising money after, after Citizens United. In fact, we see that money is actually less important than other sorts of things. You know, with the Trump election, I guess they're for, uh, 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 earned media and Twitter and, and, and what have you. Um, it's, it's not that their voices aren't getting out. It's certainly not the idea that they don't know who the donors are, so we have to have more disclosures uh, at the same time that they rail against dark money. They also rail against uh, the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson and the Mercers and all of these millionaires and billionaires who everyone knows who they are anyway. So it's, um, I, I think it's tendentious. Floyd, I, I would love to hear uh, your view on why 
um, you know, your, your confreres uh, on the left, are, uh, this has become such a, uh, such a bugaboo. Because at the end of the day, uh, Citizens United is a rather simple case um, evaluating uh, who, whether, whether the government can, can determine who can speak, how much, uh, and on what subject. And it's, it's, it's uh, the people that benefited the most from it weren't uh, uh, corporations, or at least four, you know, Fortune 500 for-profit corporations. They don't spend that much on political speech because they don't want to offend ha- half their clientele. It's independent speakers uh, and advocacy groups, whether that's the Sierra Club or the ACLU or the NRA or Planned Parenthood. Uh, or anyone uh, else. Um, so much of it, I think, is people, the American people, just don't understand uh, what Citizens United um, stood for. And that's uh, advanced in part by misinformation presented by the likes of President Barack Obama at his State of the Union, where he, in one paragraph that he spent on that uh, case, made four errors of, of basic constitutional law. We can go into that uh, if you want later. I don't want this to be a, a seminar on, on campaign finance law. Um, But anyway, uh, I'll conclude with some speculations on why we have uh, this trend uh, of the First Amendment moving to the right, uh, as it were, or really in a more libertarian direction rather than a a progressive one. Uh, Wayne Metches, who's a Delaware political scientist, wrote a book called The Right's First Amendment. uh, And he posits that uh, the instinct to protect the speech one hates may be more tenaciously embraced by those who have felt themselves to be the victim of suppression. And so uh, at a certain point after the uh, turbulent 60s and 70s, conservatives transitioned from being speech suppressors to the speech suppressed, uh, and conservatives began to slip into the role of the victim. And so this dynamic has been reignited with the uh, headline-producing debates over trigger warnings and safe spaces and microaggressions and disinvitations of uh, commencement uh, speakers. At the end of the day, uh, the sorts of cases that we will continue to see uh, are, uh, I guess, for the foreseeable future, going to come from a libertarian uh, uh, direction, although uh, not necessarily by people who are uh, on the right uh, politically or even identify strongly with uh, anything else that Cato, for example, uh, might advance. Harvey Silverglade, who had a, had a great op-ed in this morning's Was- uh, Wall Street Journal about the abuses brought about by the Department of Education uh, forcing the expansion of uh, sexual harassment definitions in a way that restricts speech uh, in various ways. Uh, going forward, the, the one uh, point that I will uh, just highlight uh, next year or probably the year after that at the Supreme Court, we're going to revisit the Friedrichs case about workers' rights who are not members of public sector unions not to have to pay fees that go towards uh, uh, the activities of the unions, because after all, at the end of the day, in the public sector context, anything uh, that a union does is some sort of political uh, activity, whether you're talking about boosting budgets or changing regulations or tenure protections uh, or, uh, or what have you. But that's where we're going, uh, and I'll just end by, uh, my, by uh, issuing my favorite quote from uh, Floyd's book, and that is that the First Amendment is the rock star of the American Constitution. Rock on, Floyd. Well, since um, Ilya has um, treated you to one of his First Amendment congressional testimonies, I will treat you with one of mine. I was testifying before Senator Mitch McConnell's committee, um, and this was an issue of whether to raise the um, 
amount that you could give to any candidate at that time, it was $1,000. And the theory was that if anybody gave a candidate more than $1,000, uh, it would corrupt him. And I said to the members of the committee, who would sell himself so cheaply? Well, nobody responded, so I said, well, then what is the right price? Uh, <laughs> nobody responded to that either. In any event, uh, let me uh, ask uh, Floyd if he wants to respond to anything that's been said so far before we turn to the Q&A. Oh, I have so much to say, but no. no. OK. Um, let me ask you the first question. Uh, we are all here to celebrate the protection the First Amendment affords for keeping the government out of individual speech. Um, there is another side to that, and it is when the government gets involved in speech, as it does when it funds such organizations as public broadcasting, national public radio. All things considered, what um, are, are your thoughts about the risks there, Floyd, if any? Well, there are risks, uh, that there's no doubt. Uh, 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 I think that, uh, you know, the, we do have a history, if, if, we're, if we're talking practically now, uh, uh, that uh, I don't think we have seen uh, governmental pressure uh, on these organizations uh, at all of the same sort as, for example, the government exercised under the Fairness Doctrine, mm -hmm. where, where you know, private entities, uh, broadcasters and the like, uh, were compelled uh, to, when it dealt with a, 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 a subject of public interest, to have the other side on, the theory being that while a newspaper doesn't have to do it, that uh, given the, what was then the shortages, the limitations, uh, of, of licenses, only a certain amount of licenses available for the broadcasting industry, that uh, there ought to be something that we can do to make sure there's a level of fairness. And, and in my view, and some scholars have argued this with a number of examples, that did bring the government in. There was pressure from the government under a number of administrations, certainly the Kennedy administration and the Nixon administration, to name two, uh, on the broadcast industry uh, about what it carried and what not as a result of the pressure uh, allowed as a result of the Fairness Doctrine. I don't think we've seen that with respect to NPR and the like. Well, you could get an argument on that. Um, they, we do see, however, uh, in all areas of um, uh, expression where the government does subsidize matters that there is the potential and, in fact, the actual fact of, for example, the Brooklyn Museum case in which you were involved, yes. where Rudolph Giuliani sought to um, remove a particularly obnoxious exhibit at that museum that uh, you, you will recall. Uh, right, but we did win that case. All right, okay, um, Ron or Ilya, any comments on what have been said before we turn to the audience? Okay. Now, wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, please uh, ask a question and um, identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have. This gentleman right here. And I'll call on someone on this side while... Uh, uh, Bill Klein, retired this, Army this physician. I'm always amazed that 
I think I'm pretty well educated, but I always get something <coughs> new to think about when I come to your events here. And what's on my mind now is this issue of, it's not so much a firewall, but maybe a permeable membrane between speech in government or public institutions like Berkeley or non-government ones like Yale. And I guess you talked about Ann Coulter's issue, but maybe it relates to something more direct. I can't shout fire anywhere in an auditorium, I don't think, without getting in trouble. But is it different if I did that at Berkeley in an auditorium or at Yale in an auditorium or even here? No, because the fire laws are the same. The, the government, there the, 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 the are two elements of government uh, in one of your hypotheticals. But in both of them, whether it's private or public, for the reasons of public safety, you can't, as Justice Holmes put it, falsely cry fire in a crowded theater. Uh, and that's true, whoever owns it. Uh, but is there a difference uh, otherwise between private and public in terms of uh, speakers and things? Yes. Yes, there is. Uh. Yes, right here. Thank you. Uh, Karen Gagliano, my question is, I guess, maybe a follow-up. Um, could you put the microphone closer? Sure. Mr. Abrams, um, could you speak more about the issue of someone like Ann Coulter at Berkeley versus... Right. Well, forget her being somewhere else, but specifically at Berkeley as a right. publicly funded institution. I mean, other organizations do take public funds, even if they're private, like a sure, Harvard or sure. Dartmouth or whatever. But do they have a right, do they have a responsibility, a legal responsibility to provide a venue or physical protection? Does she need to have an invitation? Does anyone need to have an invitation to have your rights of free speech protected on at, the, at a public institution. Right. Well, first of all, Ann Coulter has no right to go to Berkeley. The students of Berkeley, the organizations at Berkeley, have certain First Amendment rights. Uh, uh, and and, and the, they are rights of listeners, as it were, or, or rights of uh, students uh, in a public university uh, uh, setting, which, uh, according to the law, uh, are not present uh, in, in a private university. Uh, I mean, we treat public universities as if they are literally no different than the government. Um, and the fact that private universities also receive a level of funding has not been held to transform them into public institutions for purposes of the application of First Amendment law. So that, I mean, that's how we've gotten there. Uh, uh, there sometimes uh, was what may seem like artificiality uh, in, the, in the differences. Um, and, you know, one can make a policy argument. I've, I've had some scholars argue to me that, that, you know, any university ought simply be able to make an educational decision on who has something to contribute and who not. And if they think Ann Coulter doesn't, they can say no to her. Uh, the problem is the, the, the way the law comes into play uh, is that if you're allowing the college Democrats to invite Democrats and the college Republicans, which is the way this has worked out on more than one campus, when the college Republicans say, we want Ann Coulter, then for a public university, they're not allowed to do it. Uh, now, Liberty University, private, religiously uh, uh, oriented, 
Uh, I mean, who would want, who would think public policy ought to force them to have any speaker other than what they want, which is consistent with their political, social, and religious views. And that, that's their First Amendment right not to invite people. But when you get into public universities, uh, at least the way the law is, it's different. Yeah. No, the, uh, pri the yes, oh, just a very quick follow. Yeah, well, just so with respect to their having to provide a venue or security. Oh. Well, look, I, I yeah, uh, I think in a public university, the administration has to treat them the same. Um, uh, regardless of what side they're on, politically, culturally, or the like, and therefore, yes, venue and certainly security. I also think as a policy matter that it is appalling to, to see a situation in which uh, um, Ann Coulter, who, by the way, used to work uh, at my law firm, uh, I've never sort of vouched for her before, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, but but uh, but uh, uh, you know can be told that there's insufficient security. It, it, in my view, and that this is not the law now speaking, it is inexcusable for Berkeley to say we can't protect her. Yeah. Well, the private universities, of course, are entitled to exclude, but they're not entitled to the federal money. And in the Wall Street Journal this morning. There is a piece that calls for withholding that money if they cannot protect the First Amendment uh, principles, if, mm -hmm. even though they're not bound by them. Uh, the, there's also a fine review of Floyd's book in this morning's Wall Street Journal, which I commend to you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, my question is... Uh, uh, could you introduce yourself, please? Eyal okay. Moses. Uh, my question is uh, about why <coughs> there is a World uh, Freedom Index that uh, ranks the U.S. law on uh, freedom of the press. I would assume that's because the people compiling the index are using some standards that are foreign to the spirit of the First Amendment, but... I was wondering if you could give us more details about what are those differences. I'm, I'm sorry, what you, I don't know what you mean by index. I'm saying that, well, uh, um, Mr. Collins mentioned that there is a, a World Freedom Index that ranks oh, the US Oh, I see. Low. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm very into that. I've, I've just re written a, an op-ed piece for some place. Uh, uh, Finland... Uh, 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 for the sixth year in a row, uh, Ron mentioned them, for the sixth year in a row has, has been declared the, the freest free speech, free press, particularly free press place. Uh, and it is indeed very, very free. And indeed, Finland had a Freedom of Information Act in 1776 when Thomas Jefferson was working on the Declaration of Independence. But, but that said, Finland is also a country uh, where when the prime minister had an affair uh, with a, a young woman who wrote a, a tell-all book about it, uh, uh, he went to court and the government went to court and they got a court order affirmed by the European Court of, of, of Human Rights barring the book from setting forth anything about their sexual relationship or his children. 
and you know that would be unthinkable here in the the, the Bill Clinton situation, for for, for example. Right. Uh, 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 I mean, literally, if 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 Monica Lewinsky, who to her great credit, never wrote anything of that sort, had written it, and and Clinton had gone to court. He would have been laughed out of court, mocked in the country for bringing the action, and the case would have been thrown out of court. But but even in a country, and Finland is deserves a lot of credit for a, a lot of its uh, policies here. But but even in a country which finishes first every year, that's the direction they've gone, and that's much more consistent with a European view. Of, uh, of protecting much more privacy and quite a bit less free expression. Ron, is that the explanation for the different criterion? Yeah, uh, I would just add then, just uh, to put a tail on that kite, that if you don't consider blasphemy, hate speech, commercial speech, campaign finance speech, political defamation, if you don't, if that's not part of the calculus of free speech, right? then your whole notion of free speech changes. And as I tell my students, to define an issue is really to resolve it. And that's basically uh, what's happening is, is that these countries, um, the things that we consider part and parcel of free speech, they don't. And because of that, it's not part of their calculus. And Floyd gives some wonderful examples of the sorts of things that we consider as Americans, liberals, conservatives, libertarians, anarchists, all of us, as fundamental to free speech, and yet in some of these other countries, um, uh, these things are not deemed to be free speech. So I think that that explains a lot of it. Tim? Tim Lynch with Cato. Um, one free speech controversy that arose in the years after the passage of the Patriot Act involved the government's use of national security letters. We, um, I invited Nicholas Merrill to speak here a few years ago. He was a website developer who received one of these national security letters, and he explained that the text of the letter itself said it would be a crime for him to do, tell anybody else about it. And he explained how he had to think about the risks he was going to be taking by even seeking out legal advice, yeah. going to see an attorney to talk about it. And he explained how he felt having to lie to his parents and girlfriend about going to the lawyer's office to talk about these things. The government took an extraordinary position in court regarding these letters, saying it would be a crime to tell anybody else about it. So I'm wondering if you talk about that in your book and your thoughts about whether these types of controversies in national security contexts are behind us or whether we're going to be seeing more of it in the years ahead? Uh, the Patriot Act was, public, uh, was uh, adopted in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, uh, there were uh, a lot of people, myself included, uh, who were in favor of the act when it was adopted. Uh, it went too far. Uh, much too far in some areas, including the very one that you're talking about. Um, if we had a major act of terrorism, uh, would Congress, under any president, maybe especially this one, but any president, take some sort of legislative act which looked back on after 15 years 
uh, might well seem excessive? The answer is yes. On the other hand, if we had a series of 9-11s, I think the public would, would favor. In uh, uh, the very example that, that you cite, would, would favor significant limitations on speech. That's why we need to, we need to have courts that are able to take a deep breath uh, and make some of these very difficult decisions, even at times when there is a genuine risk. These were always easy if people are relaxed, and we, you know we not really think that terrible things are about to happen, but but they're always difficult or seem to be so. Uh, in the middle of a war, the, the Espionage Act of 100 years ago, not coincidentally, was in the middle of World War I. And the excesses of the Espionage Act, the dangers that, that I perceive, and I, I suspect uh, others here do, the dangers of the Espionage Act are exacerbated by the fact that it was enacted at a time of national crisis, national fear, presidential desire to do something, that was Woodrow Wilson, um, and and you know then a hundred years passed, and we said quite rightly in my view, and certainly I do it, uh, and say nothing worries me more in terms of the First Amendment than the potential overbreath of the Espionage Act. It's just that when it happens, it seems a lot different. Paul. Paul Jossie, uh, Mr. Abrams, thank you for your wonderful career um, defending the First Amendment. Um, I, I have a question um, that Ilya hit on about um, how, how we make our speech and how uh, we receive speech increasingly is, is through aggregators like um, Twitter and yeah. Facebook and obviously are not subject to the First Amendment and who have done things like set up councils to censor um, speech that they don't, don't agree with um, and which all tends to go in one ideological direction. And so I was wondering, are we headed towards some sort of dual track where um, <coughs> the First Amendment defends everything, but the way that we get our news is essentially, or, and the way that we make, uh, we make our speech is essentially subject to private censors More, as, as, um, as, as, it, as it is in Europe? Thank you. Uh, more and more, and, and I, I think this is one of the most interesting uh, issues uh, which is going to be with us for some time now. Uh, more people get their news from Facebook than from every place else, even probably combined. Um, and the question of what we would want, put aside the law for the moment. Facebook can do what it wants. It's not a state actor. Uh, what do we want Facebook to do? Uh, I don't disagree with Facebook having some policies about uh, limiting uh, racial abuse uh, and, and not carrying that. I mean, I, I don't object to them doing what I consider to be editing. I know they don't like to do it because they, they have other legal risks when they do it because, uh, you know, Section 230 of the Communications Act frees uh, them from, from the, the likelihood of responsibility, but that's, I mean, that's, that's the law uh, speaking. We've done that because to encourage uh, more dissemination of more information, more freely, etc. But when it, when it comes to the Facebook and Googles of the world, uh, it's a policy issue completely. Uh, I, uh, my own view is that uh, the fact that they have some sort of standards 
uh, of an editorial-like nature, albeit almost forced upon them by the public, uh, doesn't uh, uh, set my uh, First Amendment foot uh, dancing. Well, doesn't net neutrality and treating them like um, public utilities run the risks that you're speaking yeah. of? Yes, it does. Good. Well, we have a new FCC chairman. Um, uh, Ilya? Yeah. You know, this is as as the upshot of what Lloyd said. Floyd says is that this is much more of a cultural uh, uh, issue than a, uh, a social issue than a than a legal one, um, and uh, it's not something that's just you know people started realizing based on the you know 2016 election campaign, but uh, 15 years ago or so. Cass Sunstein, of all people, wrote a book called Republic.com about the problems for our public discourse of having uh, everybody in their own particular echo chambers. So whether it's whether it's Facebook or Twitter, or you know, back then those weren't known, but uh, when he was writing, it's just which websites do you go to for your news, and everyone goes to the ones that they agree with, and so you're not exposed uh, to the full uh, to the full debate, such as it is, which leads to um, you know one side calling the other side source of information fake news and uh, and things like this, and it's not an easily solvable problem. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a role for public policy or government involvement, um, but it is, it certainly contributes to uh, uh, a toxic uh, political culture. On a, on a completely separate note, but one that uh, um, this discussion of you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter being private entities and therefore uh, can have their own policies, um, cultural attitudes are actually different in America on this point uh, than they are uh, from what they are in, in Europe uh, as well. Europeans tend to be much more concerned uh, about uh, speech restrictions and regulations and so forth when they come from corporations, private corporations, uh, whereas in America we're more concerned about the government doing things. And that's, you know, that's, that mentality reflects a whole host of uh, uh, the, the stuff that we're talking about. Right here. Uh, I'm Amanda Dean Ahmed with the Minaretta Freedom Institute, and my question for Mr. Abrams: There was a ref couple of references to uh, your critique of using free speech, uh, freedom, uh, uh, the First Amendment, as a defense of Julian Assange's actions. And my question is: How do you apply that in the case of Edward Snowden? And if you would apply, if you would also make the same criticism in the case, no. uh, if you don't make the same criticism for Snowden, what is the distinction? And if you do, then is there no protection of whistleblowers in the First Amendment? Yeah. Well, first, uh, the the position. Uh, I do read the book, but but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but the position that I take about Snowden is much less unfavorable than about Assange, but I do say that his revelations of, uh, of uh, classified information about American foreign intelligence gathering uh, should be condemned, uh, and I condemn it in the book. I mean, I, uh, examples, uh, the U.S. has a, well, what was, a secret uh, arrangement with uh, Norway and uh, Sweden of to uh, gather information in a variety of ways about Russia, oversight, literal uh, oversight by, by flights, political information and the like, and sharing information. Uh, highly classified, uh, not someone anybody's gonna die if it's published, uh, and it was published because of Snowden. Snowden made it available to a reporter the reporter, did, this is the way Snowden did it, by the way. Again, 
more protective of, free, of, of national security than Assange, but he gave it to reporters generally of some note who, who then made their national security decisions often after consultation with the NSA or CIA or whatever. But, but take this example from a journalistic perspective. It's publishable. It's news, and no one is going to die. And, and uh, from a national security perspective, it's harmful. It was harmful. Did the Russians know? Probably. But it's different when a CIA document is released, which is what, he, what was released, an internal CIA document assessing the value of the, of the uh, agreement between the US and, and these two Scandinavian countries. Uh, uh, my view is that uh, it's unacceptable for Snowden to have done that, that, that uh, Snowden is subject to the imposition of, of law for, for doing it. Do I wish Snowden were indicted for doing it, as, as he may already have been, actually? But, but uh, well, yeah, do, we, do I get nervous about that? Yeah, Be because, you know, we're getting closer and closer to the journalistic process. But at least Snowden, Snowden is the person inside, the contract employee, treating him like a government employee. Yeah, he has certain obligations. He has to follow them if he doesn't follow them. Uh, I don't think the First Amendment's going to be a defense for him. Should it be a defense for the newspaper that published it? Is that the same thing as Snowden? Well, I hope not, uh, uh, not from a parochial uh, point of view, uh, but, but, but uh, you can see why it's problematic from a legal perspective. Uh, Assange is in a different situation. They, they publish everything. Uh, uh, and, and in my view, do not do not take into account uh, either the harm to American national security or even the people that they are naming. So, so when Assange releases a quarter of a million cables sent back and forth between American diplomats and Washington, and it contains uh, names of whistleblowers and individuals who are cooperating with the U.S. in those countries to provide information. Uh, I mean, that's very bad stuff, very dangerous, uh, and, and worthy at least of the greatest condemnation, whatever that means, uh, and you know, not honoring him as a hero for, for doing it. The legal implications, we will see. We've got time for just two quick questions and quick answers. Uh, this here just be a quick here. point of information, Glenn Marcus, uh, National Press Club, Press Freedom Committee, uh, about the uh, question about the standards used for the World Press Freedom Index. Uh, the one cited from the podium was from Reporters Without Borders, and they just published one, and then Freedom House also publishes one. So you could go to their sites, and they'll tell you what the standards are. Thank you. OK. Uh, last question. Uh, Mr. Abrams. Um, uh, could you identify yourself, please? Uh, my name is Anthony Pitch. Uh, thank you very much for being a champion of the uh, First Amendment. Many people would regard you as a savior. Um, my question is this. Why don't we skip the question? <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> some years, <laughs> some years after the Vietnam War, I interviewed McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor to President Johnson. He had changed his views uh, dramatically. He was now against the war. He'd read the Pentagon Papers, and I think that had a great influence on him. His brother, Big Mac, was against. <laughs> uh, he he absolutely was adamant that he was right. Um, my question is, did any of the principal characters come to you after your success in court and tell you something similar to what George Bundy told me, that you had swayed their views? Uh, I would say not that I had swayed their views. Uh, people who testified for the United States in the Pentagon Papers case, I, I did interview them 10 years after the case, uh, military people, State Department people, some of those people said yes, that, that they had changed their, their views, uh, um, uh, in good part because uh, I mean, the Pentagon Papers you know, was a historical study. It also ended three years before the case began. It was about how we got into Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. So one could say after 10 years, look, nothing bad happened. You know, I, I would ask people, I asked everyone who testified for the United States, was there harm to the United States as a result of the publication? And the answer was no. Uh, uh, there, was, there was a bit of embarrassment. Uh, Australia was helping us try to get out of Vietnam. The Australian government was embarrassed by some of the revelations, but nothing long-term, nothing lasting, no dangers. I mean, Justice Blackman, in his opinion in the Pentagon Papers case, talked about American POWs uh, being, being put at risk as a result of publication, which is a very harsh charge. Uh, and and uh, I mean, I don't think it was true that they were put at risk, but I know that by all accounts, uh, including uh, Vietnamese accounts, that nothing happened of a harmful nature as a result. Uh, uh, so they, in, that, in that, that type situation, one can, one can have a look uh, and people do, do and have uh, ch changed their minds, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I encourage you to read the Peter Jennings, Mike Wallace story in the last section of the book which is very insightful about the dilemma that uh, Floyd has just talked about. Um, the book is available for you to pick up outside at a discount. And, uh, and if you do so, Floyd will be happy to um, sign it for you. Uh, we're going to break now for lunch up in the uh, George M. Yeager Conference Center. Please join us. And please join me in thanking our panel for today's discussion. Thank you.